0: Hello and welcome to episode 302 of Fergo on the Freak.
1: I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at R P And Join me as always is the glorious League Freak. You can also find me on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate?
0: I'm going well, Andrew. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right now. Excellent. Uh, I'm look- looking forward to this episode because I always love the Rugby League history episodes. Yeah, and we're going to have a look tonight at the uh, the first
1: ever Rugby League tour to australia and it was by the new zealand maori team in 1908 mm-hmm. excellent it was it was drama field off the field mm-hmm. a little bit on the field but a lot went on off the field mm-hmm. um, i mean you can't really tell the story without first talking about uh the the great albert asher whose nickname was opa I think O-P-A-I. I'm not too sure on the pronunciation of that. It could be O-P-I or something like that. Albert Asher. Um, He was... Basically, he was a supremely gifted athlete. And um, his ability on the field was only so surpassed by his dedication to further enhancing rugby league in its infant years. Um, He was more than happy to spread the game of rugby league as far and as wide as he humanly could. It's amazing how so many people in these early
0: days, had that mindset. Yeah, and the thing to remember too is that Rugby League was created in New Zealand a year before it was in, in Australia. So they were a little bit of ahead of the curve. And they also, the New Zealand team, uh, played in the first Rugby League Test match. I believe it was against Wales, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. it was. Um,
1: It's amazing how... Dedicated, the game was to spreading itself as far as wide as it possibly could in those early days, and how inward-looking it tends to be today.
0: Yeah, and I guess like the, the newly found professionalism in rugby, because it was still, you know, there was still it was still rugby to a certain extent. Um, they all found it really exciting. They all wanted they wanted to show it to people. They wanted them to be a part of it. I wish we still had that in rugby league. Yeah.
1: Now, um, Asher was born uh, in 1880. Uh, at the age of just, you know, around 13 to 14 years old, it's reported he made his first grade rugby union debut uh, for Tauranga against Auckland. Uh, when he was 17, he relocated to Auckland, and in 1898, at the age of 18, he made his first grade debut for Auckland as possibly the most experienced 18-year-old athlete at the time. He had four or five years' worth of experience under his belt, and he's still having 18. Oh, yeah. Uh, in 1903, so at the age of 23, he was selected on the All Blacks team that Tour de Australia. In nine of the 10 games he played, Asher scored 17 tries. Wow. Including his first try in the first test in Sydney, which New Zealand won 22 to 3. Damn, so he was a really good player. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the following year... His career was stopped when he fell from a ladder while working as a firefighter in Auckland. Um, the extent of the injuries he sustained mostly to his knee were debilitating enough to keep him from playing any sport until late 1907, so three years out. Far out. Um, and let's be honest, all of the great rugby league players have fallen from a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> there's Asher and there's Tim Brasher. <laughs> Who else is there?
0: Um, That's pretty can uh, yeah, I can't think of any other latter incidents you in know, <laughs> Apart from the, the one with the uh, where they said he was changed. Didn't they say there was a player that was changing a light at the train station?
1: Oh, yeah, that was the uh, the first Dave Brown. Yes. Yeah, that was a bad one. Yeah, that's a whole other story. <laughs> we'll get to that one other time. Yeah. Um, so the injury kept him from a certain place on the 1905-06 All Blacks Tour to England as well as the 1907-08 All Golds professional tour, so the first rugby league tour, which was mm-hmm. the New Zealand team going to England and Australia. But it wasn't enough to stop him from playing. Despite doctors' fears that he would never, ever play again. Uh, in 1908, he became most well-known for the controversy-laden tour to uh, Australia with the Maori side. For many years, it was rumoured that the Maori side arrived at Sydney expecting to play rugby union, this is in folklore an awful lot. So they came here with the intention of playing rugby union and then an impromptu team meeting when they got off the ship, saw them change their minds and opt to play rugby league instead. That's not true. Hmm. Um, Because it was reported in local New New Zealand newspapers in March before they left New Zealand, that Asher compiled a team that would travel to Australia after receiving an invitation from the New South
0: Wales rugby league. I wonder, I wonder where that, uh, Rumors started because it it doesn't make sense. There's a lot of a lot of theories. There was I remember hearing one
1: theory once suggesting that the the team wouldn't be accepted in Australia if they had any intention of playing professional rugby. Ah, oh, okay. So They came over here with the intention of playing amateur, and then once they got here, it's like oh, we're going to play professional now. That
0: that kind of makes sense.
1: But I. There was there was a few theories. That's the one that um, I got told many many years ago, mm-hmm. and I was told that that was a theory. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's nothing to support any of these. I just don't know how this story came about. It's kind of like the uh, the 1909 final between Baumain and South. Now you know there's a rumor going around that Baumain and South both agreed to forfeit the game. All yeah. the evidence suggests that only Baumain chose to do that, and they'd never spoke with South.
0: You know, it reminds me of uh there there was a problem in super League. It was a number of years years ago now where players weren't declaring that they were going over to play professional rugby league. They were going over on different visas and then it all got found out yeah there's
1: there's always these uh sneaky efforts i guess to try and play the game yeah it's only a rot if you 're not in on it exactly exactly now the uh the Maori team set sail for Sydney aboard the Moana on May 25th, 1908. Uh, they had a squad of 26 players as well as four Maori chiefs. They were accompanied by Tom O'Farrell, who was a prominent Sydney referee at the time, who was elected as team secretary, and Asher was the leader of the touring party, both on and off the field. Um, the Maori side were going to thrill, excite, amaze the crowds. This is what they were you know, promoting throughout New South Wales at the time anyway. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not just with their on field performances, but also with war dances, Maori music, art, um, yeah, things like that. So it's all about trying to, I suppose, also share the culture of the of the Maori people
0: with people in Australia. Yeah, and like the thing to remember at this time is, you know, you can't just jump on YouTube. YouTube isn't out for about three or four more years, so you can't just jump on YouTube and find out about Maori culture and things like this. So. You know, there'd be a lot of people that would go and see the Maori team play. And they had never even seen a Maori person before. That's right.
1: Uh, and if they had, it was just as a rugby league, well, rugby union player for New Zealand. Mm. So they didn't actually get um, exposed, I like dare say, to the Maori culture. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, maybe the Haka, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is something really new and, and novel, I like guess. Um, it was thought by everyone that the the tour was going to be a huge success on the field and financially. Now, there was a man in Sydney, and he's going to come up in this story every now and then for not very uh, positive reasons anyway. His name was Robert McKethney Jack, and he claimed he'd been in correspondence with Asher regarding organising games, venues, and other events on the tour as early as October 1907. He sought a Fife... 5% Uh, 5% commission of all of Mary Gay takings for payment for his services. Now, Asher explained that while negotiations with Jack had been undertaken, no, agree- no agreement had been settled upon um, in regards to terms of payment to Jack for his services. Asher then decided to take up the organisation of the tour with the New South Wales Rugby League. So, as far as he's concerned, this Robert Jack had no involvement in this tour whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Robert Jack, though, thought he still was involved even though he didn't organise anything. Um, the Mary team arrived in Sydney on May 29, 1998, greeted at the Sydney docks by James Gilton and Henry Hoyle. From there, they were taken to St. James's Hall for their official welcoming ceremony. Having played little to no rugby league at all, the New South Wales Rugby League appointed George Boss, who was uh, one of the prominent Sydney referees at the time, to help teach the Mary players how to play the new game. And he was showing them basically scrummaging, and play the ball. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was very similar to Rugby Union at the time, but that was the one thing he was teaching them how to how to play uh, under the Rugby League rules. The, uh, the Mary Tours started off with high spirits, great sportsmanship, athleticism, and most importantly, big crowds. It was this great fanfare and attraction that would go on to be a great concern for the tourists in the end. The first game on June 8 against New South Wales at the Agricultural Ground drew a crowd of around 30,000 people.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. The masses flocked so quickly that Henry Hoyle, the president of the New South Wales Rugby League, authorised the opening of another gate into the stadium. However, he forgot to notify the Maori team management about the extra gate being open. Thus, they were unaware of the extra gate takings being made on that day through that other
0: gate. It's only a rort if you're not in on it.
1: <laughs> exactly right. Uh... Hoyle stated that a gentleman with whom he had the utmost confidence in was looking after the takings on the newly opened gate. The Mary team, though, never saw any of the takings from it. They later went to inspect the counter on the extra gate to try and ascertain how much recompense they were entitled to, only to find that the counter had been removed. That's just unfortunate, yeah. What are the odds? What are the odds? That's just doesn't sound suspicious at all.
0: No, no.
1: So, obviously, there's now a bit of a fractious relationship between the Maori team and the New South Wales Rugby League. And this is after one game. Mm-hmm. The Maori officials made it clear that they felt they had been cheated out of monies that they rightfully deserved, which angered Hoyle and Secretary James Gildnan. That first massive crowd also brought in another man intent on making money out of the tourists. The gate teams were so large for a first game that Robert Jack felt compelled to try and claim money, which the USI believed he wasn't entitled to. So not only have they have been screwed out of money by the New South Wales Rugby League through that extra gate, but now there's Jack Blokes turned up when he wants to get money as well. Yeah, this all went south very quickly. Yep. <laughs> um, the second game drew a crowd of 20,000 people, and the Maoris believed that they could continue attracting large crowds if they can improve their on-field performances. This coincided with Asher announcing post-match that George Boss had been appointed as the team's business manager, while still acting as coach. He accepted the
0: position and immediately resigned as a member of the New South Wales Rugby League Referees Association. See, that's interesting. I wonder if for him it was just a financial position as much as anything.
1: Well, back then, I mean, as I found with a lot of the referees in that first year, um, and probably with all referees, mm-hmm. maybe a few exceptions, very high on moral integrity. Yeah. So, the episode we did uh, on. Ted Hooper, I think we did one on Ted Hooper, the first referee. The first referee, yep. Um, the New South Wales Rugby League offered to pay all of the referees money, and all the referees got together and says, no, 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 the game should keep the money that they give to us in order to help them grow and survive. Wow, that's So really they forfeited weird. any pay for that first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have got George Boss not wanting to be cons- um, considered as a referee while he's helping a team from another country, you know, another country essentially yeah. helping them get better at what they do. So he resigned from one role so he could focus on the other one without having any, you know, negative connotations dare say, going on and people thinking that, you know, he could be rigging the games one way or the other.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, during the third tour game played against Sydney Metropolis, it was reported that Gilton left the grandstand where he was spectating the game to argue with the referee about an alleged foul of foul play by the Maori players. It would not be the last of the hostile relationship between the two parties. That's the thing. Giltman would go to all of the rep games. hmm He wanted to be there. He was very much a hands-on sort of person when it comes to, you know, running the game.
0: I guess because he, he was so involved financially and, and wrapped up financially in the game too. Exactly. You know. Okay. Um
1: the fourth opponent on the tour was Newcastle. And prior to the match, Asher told the league that he had chosen Aubrey Welch to be the referee. Gilden overturned Asher's decision, informing him that he must choose a referee from a panel of four officials who he had personally chosen, which did not include Welch. Asher, though, refused to back down from his decision. Welch then had to travel from Sydney to Newcastle with the Marriott team, and with no time left to organise a replacement ref, Gilden agreed to let Welch officiate, having forced the Marriott team to pay his wage for the game.
0: Wow, it it's weird that there was so there was so much weird stuff going on. Like it's getting petty now. Y- yeah, yeah. Um, as the Maori players
1: travelled north of the border into Queensland, Mr. Jack took their team management to the equity court to try and gain money he felt he was owed from gate receipts. On the day of the Maori game against Toowoomba, Jack had successfully got an injunction against eighteen Maori players, preventing them from receiving any money from the New South Wales Rugby League. The league assumed that this meant that the tourists were not to receive any money from them for the entire tour until the case had been settled. Mm -hmm. So they contacted the Queensland Rugby Association and informed them of the matter. So the Maori thought they were going to Queensland, they'd at least be able to get money from the Queensland because it's not being run by New South Wales Rugby League. Mm -hmm. But the league's gone and told Queensland that you can't give them any money either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The poor Maori players, like, they they go to Australia, their first game, outstanding success, and they're getting screwed over every single time afterwards. It's every game, every week, there's another mm. thing
1: screwing them over. That's incredible. Um, Asher, though, was made aware of this issue before leaving Newcastle, so he decided to leave 10 players and the three entertainers in Sydney to save on travel costs. After the first game against Queensland, Gilton was informed that there was no Maori people providing any pre-match entertainment or performing in any concerts after games. So he rounded up the remaining 13 Maori players and entertainers in Sydney and sent them to Brisbane. He then (laughs) forwarded the bill for the travel to the Maori team management, who were now not receiving any money at all due to the equity case against them. (laughs) You see, these poor guys. They came here with every intention of, of, you know... Showcasing what they're capable of, yeah, and this is the treatment they got,
0: yeah, that's incredible, yeah, you would have thought that the New South Wales Rugby League would have you know done everything to to foster a good relationship with them just because it's another professional outlet that they can sell uh rep game rep games to the public with,
1: yeah, but you also get the impression too that um. If there's an opportunity for the New South Wales Rugby League to make a few dollars here in their first season, then they're going to take it. And if it means that they get to hang on to some money for a little while, maybe get some interest on it, mm-hmm. then that's something that they're going to take. I'm not saying yeah. that's the case, but, you know, you, you look at any option that's available to you at the time when it comes to making money when you you start out with zero in the bank. Yeah. Um, the second game against Queensland drew the anger of locals when they learned that the referee was none other than George Boss the newly appointed Maori business manager. Oh. The New Zealand Maori team won the game 13-5. to five.
0: Yeah, I can understand why that upset
1: them. Yes. Yes, that would... Like, there was... None of the match reports suggest that Boss did anything bad. Most of them say that he, he was, you know, quite fair. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's not a good look. No. Yeah, by the start of the third game against Queensland which was just eight days after the previous one. The Mary players had become very angry with the Queensland Rugby Association for not giving them their share of the gate receipts. Now That's because they were unaware that the New South Wales Rugby League had contacted the Queensland Rugby Association. Mm-hmm. So they were wondering what the hell Queensland were doing not giving them their gate receipts. This was the first time the off-field drama started to show on-field. Prior to halftime, Asher had become frustrated with referee O'Connor and the way he was handling the game, and he ordered his team to walk off the field. Oh, wow. They were eventually convinced to return to the field. Former New Zealand Australian Rugby Union forward scored a try in the diameters for Queensland to give them a 6-5 victory. Um, you're starting to see now that they're getting quite pissed off. Yeah,
0: and that's understandable at this point.
1: The third game against Queensland was played at Warwick and was the scene of more intrigue when the tourists started the game with just 11 players and finished with just 10 on the field. Oh, uh-huh. Game against Queensland. What Sorry. happened to those players? Like, did they just? Well, they're starting to run out of funds, yeah. And so the the games that aren't against the more prominent sides, you know, not deemed to be the official senior matches of the tour, mm-hmm. they chose to rest as many players as they could, so they could field a strong team for the games, you know, against the top rep sides. Yeah. So the game against Queensland at Toowoomba became a violent and wild affair. Asher was so angered by the refereeing, the crowd, and the opponent's tactics that during the second half, he ordered his team off the field and the disgruntled crowd spilled onto the ground in an attempt to attack the tourists. They didn't return to finish the match. Wow, it's just getting
0: worse and worse. Mm.
1: The Maritua headed back to Sydney as it drew to its closing mid-July. They beat a Newcastle team in Maitland before putting in a splendid display against the Australian team, which was basically just New South Wales with the addition of two players, uh, William Hartcastle, and Ernest Anilzak. But they went down 20 to 10. The Mary then played against Metropolis, which is basically the Sydney team, uh, once more. And they were trialling half time. but then put in possibly their best performance of the tour in the second half, scoring 34 unanswered points. Wow. These last two strong performances saw the league hastily organise a second match against Australia before the final game against New South Wales. There were negotiations also underway to play a final game in Melbourne. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, On the morning of the second game against Australia, Asher informed the league that they would not play because the league was withholding money due to the players whom there was no legal injunction against. Asher sought legal advice which confirmed that the league had broken its agreement with the Maori team management. (coughs) George Boss, their manager, stated to the media the next day, and this is his words, The Maori's this morning decided unanimously to abandon the tour under the auspices of the league, and an expression of interest led to the motion that a new team be formed to be styled the New Zealand native team, which will include several of the New Zealand natives residing in Sydney. It is thought that one or two matches could be arranged here and in New Zealand. At the present time, it cannot be said whom we will play, but we don't anticipate any
0: trouble in securing a ground or a team to play against us. Now, this sounds like one of two things. Either they know now that the... New South Wales Rugby League has seen how much money they can make and they're holding their feet to the fire by saying, look, we'll make this brand new team if you don't pay us our money. Or because of the legal ramifications of them continuing to play as the Maori team, they've said, okay, Maori Maori team's over. This is a completely new team. We're going to start a new tour. We're going to play a couple of games. It's not even related to the Maori team. That's exactly what it was. The second mm. part, um,
1: right. and it's all about trying to get at this stage enough money to pay for their journey back home. Oh wow! Because they've had every every bit of money withheld from them. Mm-hmm. The Mary team manager put forward a proposal to play a fifteen-a-side game. However, Hoyle, Gilton, and the Rugby Union opposed the idea, threatening life suspensions to any players who
0: took part in the fixtures against the New Zealand native team. You're <laughs> <For laughs> safe. So they had Rugby League and Rugby Union threatening life bans. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. And so now the league, the New South Wales Rugby League, was not going to allow anyone to play against this New Zealand native team. So that was automatically going to make it harder for them to get big crowds. Mm -hmm. So an almost shambolic match between the New Zealand natives and the Sydney Metropolis game was organised. However, the Metropolis team contained a number of Maori players loaned to them by the tourists. One player wasn't even wearing shoes. <laughs> Even the programs had different players named for Metropolis than those that took the field. The Maori side were resounding winners. Was well, shortly after this game that and set sail with the first Kangaroo squad to tour England, and Horry Miller was appointed the New South Wales secretary. So New South Wales Rugby League secretary Miller immediately paid the fares home for the Maori team, much to the delight of the, the delight of the visitors. And that's where things slowly start to change because Horry Miller didn't understand why there was so much animosity between the two and it could have all just been sorted out very simply and very easily. Yeah. And so he went and settled it.
0: Okay.
1: Now, amazingly, after that tour, in 1909, the Maori team
0: decided to return. Now, I would love to know what the conversation was to convince them to come back. Yeah, I'd like to know. Yeah, there must have been Um, some some really good, smooth talk in there. (laughs) Well,
1: Asher came with him as well, and he returned to the course to try and put an end to the legal wrangle with Robert Jack. Prior to the fourth game against Australia on this second tour, Jack claimed he was still owed £213 and issued a court order against Asher until the money was paid. The local police arrested Asher. When the league heard of this ordeal, they merely settled the Maori team's debt with Jack as well as an additional, an additional £121 owed to a Mr Marshall so that Asher could be released in time to get to the game that afternoon. Wow. Well, yeah. Now, ironically, Gilden Hoyle and Victor Trumper, who was pivotal in the creation of the league, were all sacked after the massive financial disaster that befell the kangaroos touring side to England in 1809, as well as allegations that Gilden and Trumper had secret bank accounts containing monies belonging to the league, which was later found to be false. Mm-hmm. and we went after that in very thorough detail in the 1909 episode.
0: Yeah, which I'll link in the description for this podcast. Yep. Uh,
1: The Kangaroo's return home was financed by the Northern Union. It's kind of interesting how the New South Wales Rugby League, you know, blankly refused to give the Maritime any money
0: Mm -hmm.
1: until, you know, the deputy treasurer came in and said, take some money and you can get yourself home. Mm -hmm. And then the Australian Kangaroo Tourists, several months later, were so poor that they couldn't afford to
0: <laughs> get home from England. Yeah, without the uh, the help of the, what would it have been? Was it the Northern it was, Football Union at that yeah, point? Or the that, football that's again? right. Yeah.
1: Um, upon their return home after the 1908 tour, the Maritime wrote a letter to Horry Miller, who was the Acting Secretary of the League, and he said, We wish to convey to you our thanks and appreciation for your kindness to our Chiefs and boys during their recent visits to Australia. We were specifically pleased at your assisting them home before the completion of their time and bringing them away from possible trouble. They speak highly of the treatment received from you and your league, in fact, from the people of Australia. We are sorry to learn from our chiefs and boys that some of the party did not observe our good counsels. So it seems like the relationship with Horrie Miller was a very strong and positive one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Maori team clearly were a lot happier once Gilton and Hoyle were out of the scene, and Gildenham, you know, went over to England.
0: So Yeah, and it seemed like the the New South Wales Rugby League, once they went over to England, they fixed up a lot of the problems that the Maori had, and they did it very easily and quickly too.
1: Yeah, Harry Miller was a a brilliant administrator. He was actually a player as well as an administrator in that very first season. Mm Um. This, an interesting sub-story about Horry Miller too is that he was he wanted to remain as an amateur, so he didn't receive payment for playing rugby league either, because he was also, I believe, a very prominent sprinter in Sydney at the time. And so uh, yeah. By remaining as an amateur, he was able to still compete in you
0: know athletic competitions and stuff like that. Yeah, which it's interesting when you think that, uh, like, you don't really think about uh, athletics having that amateur status that was very important to them as well. That's right. And,
1: I mean, for Harry Miller too, he was almost banned from partaking in any athletic competitions because he was involved with a professional sporting organisation. So he had to put in an application to have uh, an exemption put against him as a professional because he went on to prove that he wasn't receiving any money for his job uh, on committees within the league or as a player. But he only played, I think, the first season. Yeah. Um, see, that's a, an interesting little sub-story with Harry Miller there. So you he, he could understand some of the struggles that would be before
0: teams when they're looking at professionalism as well. Yeah, he was dealing with that the politics side of the sport. Yeah. And, went, and sport in general, not just rugby league, obviously. That's all right. Um, so that was yeah, it's a, a pretty quick episode, but
1: that was a pretty um, – Pretty insane tour. And knowing that uh, Asher came back to Australia after that horrible first tour and then went into jail after four games. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the league then paid out the debts. And they didn't pay it out of their pocket. It was paid out of essentially the money that was being withheld by the Maori initially anyway. Yeah. It's probably some out of the league's pocket. But the league didn't have a huge amount of money in 1909. So a lot of it's just going to be money they were holding for the Maori side.
0: Um, yeah, it's um, it's amazing that um, they convinced them to come back, and it's interesting that, that the Maori will put through the ringer, and then you had the New South Wales Rugby League just hit that financial hurdle with Kangaroo Tour and kind of got some of their own medicine. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story and one that. You know, you don't hear talked about too much. You hear a lot about the the test matches between, like, Australia and Great Britain and things like that, the kangaroo tours, but you don't hear very much about other tours like the Maori did of Australia.
1: No, and the Maori toured over here
0: um, a few times, not a lot, but
1: a few times. Um, I think there was another tour, oh God, I'm been in the 50s. And they played, you know, they played a ton of games every time, you know, Great Britain, France, Australia. anytime time they toured around New Zealand, they always made sure they played a game against the Maori side. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until really the Pacific Cup, when they first started in 1975, that they started playing on a very regular basis. So it was... There are 10 that's been around from day
0: one. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting. It makes you think about... Would you be able to have a Maori tour now? Not just in Australia, but you know anywhere. And how would it be made up? Because obviously, the New Zealand rugby league team would get priority over the over you know the best players if we've got a test season. Um, I think you could probably have a Maori team play the likes of PNG and you know even Fiji and Samoa and Tonga and that. And, you know, it might be a good thing for New Zealand Rugby League to have that extra exposure at international levels for, you know, a group of their players or their eligible players. Um, You know, we've got State of Origin in Australia. This might be their, their way of being able to get those extra games somehow and maybe even, you know, get a little bit of money together out of the sport as well.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing more games played by the Maori side. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I, I was just looking in here. They, they toured Australia again in 1922 and then in 1956. Mm-hmm. So that was. They did come back a few times, but not too often. And took um, part in the uh, 2000 World Cup as well. That's right. They also toured uh, England in 1983. And I believe they were undefeated on that tour. Oh, wow. Let me just have a look here. They beat Humberside 18-13. They beat the Heavy Woolham League.
0: I've never heard of them. No,
1: 28-8. to They beat Halifax League, 40-10. to Barrow League, 46-12. Cumbria, 40-6. to York League, 16-6. to Oldham League, 28-16. And Bala, the amateur
0: British team, 22-14. Wow. You know, they'd be a good side to play against France. You know, if they played every year against France, it would be good for the New Zealand Rugby League and French Rugby League, I believe.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to see them playing a lot more often.
0: Mm. Um, I love it so... when they play against the um, Australian Indigenous team. I just think that's amazing because, you know, it. It's they're both representing their own cultures and you can see the passion that both sides have. And it, there's something about that that's really raw, and I just love watching that. Yeah, they're, they're, the passion that
1: they have got, you know, representing their people in those environments is next level. We don't mm. see that for any other nation. No, no. It's unbelievable. Um, just going to look here. through the 1908 tour, they beat New South Wales 18, 18 to 9. Then they beat them again 30 to 9. Oh, sorry, New South Wales beat the Mary 18 to 9. New South Wales then beat them 30 to 16 a week later. The Maori then beat Metropolis 23-20. They beat Newcastle 15-2. They beat Queensland 19-16, 13-5. In the third game, they lost 6-5. They lost the fourth game against Queensland 11-9, and they lost the fifth game against Queensland 23-14. Queensland didn't actually have their own local competition in 1908
0: either. Okay,
1: This started the year after. So, the games getting played against Queensland were, you know, they were the first games played by, you know, Queensland players pretty much. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And in the fourth game, one of their players, Mickey Dore, was the referee. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. a, an interesting counter to the fact that George Boss refereed the
0: uh, the second game. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the locals thought about that. I, I would have been pretty happy. <laughs> you <laughs> know, uh, it, there was something you said. Um, during this episode, and it made me think, I wonder who the last player was that played in bare feet at an elite level in rugby league.
1: Yeah, that's the thing too about that one.
0: No one actually knows which player it was
1: because they put out a program, Mm -hmm. but the program had a lot of players listed on there who they knew were not going to be playing in the game. Yeah. Because the Mary players are going to be playing for the opposition side as well. So we don't actually know who they were because it's not been listed
0: anywhere and no one reported on the game. You know, I could I could just see where there was somebody that come from, you know, one of the country rugby league teams come to Sydney and they really had to be convinced that, no, nah, you really should wear boots. And they're like, no, nah, they're heavy. I've always played in bare feet. I could just say that. It'd be interesting I don't know, when the last one was.
1: Yeah, I think too. I don't think they actually played with spikes in their boots either back then either, so it probably wouldn't have mattered too much that they were yeah. barefoot. Yeah. But geez, it would have if they had
0: studs. Oh, yeah. that would Someone be... would have just trod on your foot. Boom. Ah! Especially back then. Yeah. Like, they they would have done it on purpose back then.
1: Now, um, there were, after the 1908 Tour, it ended, obviously, as we mentioned before, there were games to be played against Australia and New Zealand. But the last game against New Zealand was... Was cancelled. A third game to be played at Melbourne was being organised, but was also cancelled due to a strike by the Maori side. An exhibition game against Metropolis played at Sports Ground was won thirty-two to seventeen by the Maori. This match was played under Union rules in the first half and League rules in the second half. Ah,
0: oh, that's an interesting one.
1: Now, it was also the last game of the tour, but it's not listed because it was clearly an exhibition game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that was just one of the things they did to try and get some gate takings in with something unique, like half league, half union game and try and get gate takings when they knew that their opposition wasn't going to be as strong as they hoped.
0: So let's just make something a bit more novel and unique. Yeah. It's interesting that this time in, and it's really world sport when you look at it, that people, it's like this realization that there's money to be made in sport, that it's something that the public enjoys. Um, Obviously, you know, officials see that and they want to have events that, you know, people can look forward to and they were willing to try so many different things and all of these things that they were trying, I mean, it all eventually led to the modern day sports that we just take for granted but the, their willingness to just try things that are really out of left field, I always find that very interesting. Oh, Absolutely. And that was the thing that was big on, the, you know, these first,
1: especially first three or four years of the game, is that they would try anything to have the game look a little bit different or unique to try and pique the interest of the public and get some good crowds out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no more so than the Kangaroos versus Wallabies games in 1909. Yeah. yeah. You that's know, it's not something that's happened since.
0: And now we uh we try something new with our rules every six and a half minutes, it's great.
1: Yeah, well, you anyway, know. That's the thing back then. They weren't they weren't piss farting around with the rules so much, so we were just trying different game concepts, but they were always made sure that they were exhibition. Yes. Now we just change official games on a whim all the time. Yeah, and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about consequences. Yeah, that'll be fine. She'll be fine um so yeah it was, it's it's something that's always fascinated me that first tour because it was the first tour to australia by any team
0: and no one talks about it you don't hear about it written anywhere no you don't and just all the off-field turmoil and you know how difficult they made it for the maori side uh it's a really interesting story and like i know i always enjoy the history episodes because there's so many things that have happened in the game's history. Like rugby league's got this really beautiful long history from day one. And there's so many incredible stories that, you know, you don't hear about that often. And, and this is one of them.
1: Absolutely. And I think the other thing too, that surprised me when I was researching this one was, you know, a lot of people have got this um, very positive attitude towards James Mm Gilton. You know, he was a, the godfather of rugby league, essentially. You know, he, he got it all going and got the ball rolling. But we also saw that he was a man with plenty of flaws. Yeah. So like he had, he had the, the failed kangaroo tour, which most people know about. Um, that wasn't entirely his fault, though. There was a lot of strike action going on in England at the time, so a lot of very small crowds. Um, and he did the the one... Almost foolish thing that a lot of people do even to this day when they're down on money and they're trying to chase more coin is I'll put the price up of whatever it is they're selling Mm -hmm. and that just turns more people away, especially when they're on strike and they're not earning any money. Yeah. So that was a big issue he had there. Um, They had some horrible weather over there. I mean, who would have thought you'd have horrible weather in England, but there you go. Yeah. Um, And so that was – they played huge roles in that tour being a financial disaster. And the fact that they kept playing games to try and get the funds – you know, every game costs money. So they played 45 games
0: on that tour. It's just insane. It's incredible, yeah. Over there for months. I guess um, the the thing to remember about him, though, is, like, this is a guy that really believed in in professional rugby league. And to just to make it happen, he had to have been a certain sort of person. Like, he must have been very cutthroat and willing to almost do whatever it took to make it succeed because, it, you know, there were so many obstacles in front of everybody just to get the game going. And so I guess, like as you say, with the people that found rugby league in Australia in particular, who you hear more about than than other places in the world, um, they do get put up on a pedestal. But what they were doing was so outrageous to a certain extent um you know there were a certain sort of personality that it would even attempt to do what they were doing so i guess it it kind of shows that you know this was a guy that was willing to say yeah we're going to play 45 games you know if we've got a chance to you know save money here and there we're going to do it and that's what was needed yeah it's um it, it's it's a job
1: that you couldn't have been able to do and please everyone in that first year
0: yeah 100%. like I
1: said before like you're starting off with zero money in the bank so you're gonna to have to be cutthroat in a few places
0: yeah exactly exactly um, and, you know that you, you're gonna it's the old saying you got to crack some eggs to make an omelet and you know I'm sure that there were times when he sort of thought to himself look I'm going to upset these people, this isn't the right thing to do, but I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to tell the players we've got to stick around in in England for longer, all sorts of things that were compromises just to keep the sport going.
1: I often wonder, too, if the negative press he was getting during all of this merit tour mm-hmm. played a role in his downfall because there was a few, a few board members at other clubs who had quickly grown tired of him and they were looking for reasons to oust him. Yeah. Hence, hence why we had that whole saga with the, you know, alleged secret bank accounts, which were later proven to be legitimate and not secret. No, it was just money they were using to pay
0: upcoming rental fees on venues. Yeah. And I guess uh, too, because rugby league was, you know, begun because players were seeing how much money was being earned and they wanted you know, their piece of the pie. And, you know, so the, so people that joined the Rugby League, they had a certain mindset about almost what players were entitled to or what they deserved. And then when you see the Maori team come over and straight away they start seeing this brand-new administration that's supposed to really be about the players getting what they deserve start screwing over the Maori team here and there. That wouldn't have sat well with everyone, I would suggest. Yeah.
1: Because, um, I mean, that, that's the thing. that's as, you, as, as you'll find when you listen back on the 1909 episode, that you know, Gilton was sacked when he was on the ship coming back home from Australia, from England to Australia. Yeah. So he didn't find out until he got home. Mm. Um, and he, was, he sort of went missing from the game for a year or two and then came back as an administrator at the Annandale Club. Mm-hmm. And he hung around there for quite a while. Um and eventually became a you know a respected figure in the game, and I think he righted a lot of wrongs along the way yep you know he got a lot of the respect back. I think a lot of people didn 't realize the amount of personal sacrifice he went through for the game, especially in that kangaroo tour mm-hmm. um, so he he managed to repair his his image and you know in a public sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah there was I think looking back on this one, he, you sort of realise that he didn't need to be as harsh as he was from the get-go.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was some pettiness involved as well, which didn't need to be there. Yeah. And it could have been all, you know, it could have been a longer tour here, and it was making pl- plenty of good crowds. And because there was a lot of negative, like a negativity between the league and the Maori side, obviously the crowds start to drop. And that's, that was the ultimate downfall of the tour. Because it's just a negative connotation constantly going on with the tour. People start going, eh, you know.
0: I also guess that, you know, with this being the first touring side and the first time that everything that the New South Wales Rugby League in in particular had done at this point was we're making money for us and it's not going anywhere. All of a sudden, this is the first tour and it's the first time they're having to hand money over to somebody else to a different entity where it doesn't stay in the game at all. It, it's gone it, as far as they're concerned. That's right. Um,
1: and you throw in the fact that he had that, you know, Robert McKethney Jack just pinching money from the sideline as well. Yeah. They're trying to find out more about what happened to him, but, you know, obviously because he was a nobody within the game, he just disappeared from all communication. We don't know what happened with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I'd like to know how he actually got in touch with the Maori to start with in 1907. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting conversation, how the talks broke down to the situation where Asher was convinced that they'd agreed that Jack was not going to be used. Yet Jack was convinced that he was going to get paid.
0: Yeah, he, so, he must have had a contract at some level because he must have been showing evidence that, you know, he had this deal in place.
1: Yeah. So it's it's because obviously everything back then obviously was done by telegram. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna be written down. So I dare say that was that was important in the whole case. It's
0: such an amazing story, guy.
1: Oh it's phenomenal. And the <laughs> amount of odd things like the the um the turnstile that didn't have the counter on it.
0: Yeah. Just stands automatically suspicious. It makes you it makes you think about like They must have sent somebody down and said, I need you to, you know, take this counter off. And, and it would have had to have been like unscrewed or something like it could, it wouldn't have just been, oh yeah, take it off the top. No problems. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's
1: going to be obvious too, that it's not there. Mm. And the first thing you're going to do is how come there's not a counter at the gates? Yeah. Like they're at every major stadium. Everyone yeah. has them there. That's how you balance your books. You know, we had these many people walk through the gate and this many people, this is how much I was supposed to pay. It all exactly. balances out. A
0: one of the first things that the new rugby league would have made sure is that they were counters on gates because they needed them for yeah. their auditing and stuff like that.
1: That's right. So it's it's interesting how the, uh, the counter hadn't been removed from any other game throughout the year, but it was just for that one game. Yeah, it's a
0: weird one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not casting any... Uh... Any doubts or allegations there? But, yeah, it's a bit – it's suspicious. It's very dodgy. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get sued by by
0: Henry Hoyle or uh, Gilton's ancestors. James Gilton and the Fifth mm-hmm. comes after you.
1: I heard your podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, so. so, look, there was so much amazing information – that you've come up with there uh these history episodes are incredible where can people go to contribute to the digitization of rugby league history
1: ah simply put you just go to patreon.com slash rl project
0: and you can make a donation there from as low as one dollar per month that's fantastic and it's very easy to sign up um there's different payment methods and yeah it's fantastic because you know this is a way that rugby league history is modernised and kept alive and it's fantastic to be part of a podcast where, you know, working with a rugby league historian is always fantastic and, yeah, it's it's great. It's been a great episode.
1: Yeah, we've got a few more of these we're going to be putting out soon too, so um, I know it's been nice since we've done a history episode. I just want people to realise that we're not stopping them. <laughs>
0: no, no. Look, if we could, we would just do history episodes but we tend to jump on and we'll be like, oh, did you see this happened today? This happened today? And we end up starting to just talk about football. And then we just press record and start talking about football. Um, like how many history episodes have we said we want it? Like there's at least half a dozen where we're basically ready to rock and roll right now. Yes. And But we've just got to get stuck into them and say, oh, it doesn't matter who Melbourne signed today. Uh, it doesn't matter who the West Tigers signed leading into Christmas. we just got to do some history episodes. Exactly. exactly. So we'll
1: pump a few more out and try and release them a little bit more regularly than we had done in the past two months. For sure. All righty. Well, uh, that pretty much wraps that one up. You can uh, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, at uh, FergoFreakPod. We're on YouTube, MySpace, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, so get over there and subscribe, like, all that sort of stuff over there. That would be fantastic. Make sure you go to your podcast listening app and give us a five-star rating and give us a review as well. And we will read it out on the podcast and put it up on our website as well. Um,
0: you can even leave us a comment on the website, Freaky. Yeah, if you go to com and go to the contact section and you can send us an email through there. Uh, we will get to everyone's emails eventually. We know it's been a while. We do read the emails, so uh, if you've got any suggestions, something you want us to cover, or you've just got something you want read out in the podcast, just go there.
1: Sounds fantastic. And on that awesome note,
0: we'll wrap this one up. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.
1: Catch you all next time.